Good morning, everybody. Welcome to church. Yeah. And uh, how, oh, am I on? Yeah, I'm on. How about a happy new year? Yeah, there you go. Come on. You guys are a little bit more excited about the new year than the 845 service. <laughs> I was like, happy new year. They're like, mm, we'll see. <laughs> well, uh, this year is off to a rambunctious and uh, assertive start. How about the weather? I mean, the weather is firing. All right, so let's talk about the weather for just for a moment. The waves, anyone go down to see the waves? You know, if you're into the prophetic stuff, waves have big prophetic meaning, you know, the movement of God's spirit. Uh, some people were ready for the storm and for the waves, and some were not. Uh, let's go to the first image. You know, some people got a little surprised. Blindsided by the waves. For some, the waves and the storm was uh, a nightmare. But what's interesting is the same storm, the same waves, for others, let's go to the next slide, was a tremendous blessing, was a thrill. You got some people running from the ocean, other people running into the ocean. Get this 15 to 20 foot sets rolling into yours truly, swamis. Come on, right here, this is swamis. Uh, January 6th, went down there to watch it with my own eyes. People paddling out, dropping on the biggest waves I'd ever seen in person. It was absolutely amazing. Um, you know, there's, an, there's a cool little quote. Let's put up Oswald Chambers, a great devotional writer. Huge waves that would frighten an ordinary swimmer produce a tremendous thrill for the surfer who has ridden them. Now, there's a cool little spiritual parable in this that's going to lead into our passage, into our series. The idea that one person's nightmare becomes another person's, um, I don't know what, like adventure. I don't know what else to call it, but the surfer is ready for the 20-foot wave, not because they decided that day to be a surfer and go out there, right? Those surfers who are out there on 20-foot days, they, they are prepared. They have their gear. They've got the nine-foot gun. They've got their wetsuit. They, they've been practicing. They've been training. If you see surf footage of people riding 30, 40, 50, go to Portugal, Nazare, guys riding 70-foot waves, you've got to train to ride a wave that big. You've got to have special training, right? Special equipment, maybe a jet ski to pull you into that wave. You don't just walk out there with sheer willpower. See, you know, willpower that says, I don't know how to surf, but I'm going to paddle out on a 20-foot day is not courage. That is just stupidity <laughs> because they're not trained. That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to go into a series on spiritual practices, the way that God uses spiritual practices to draw us deeper into his presence and the way spiritual practices leverage the grace and the power of God for the transformation that God wants to produce in our life. We have an indispensable part to play in the work that God is doing in us. And the Bible is full of incredible, bold promises about the deep work of transformation and renewal in even the most recalcitrant, stubborn parts of our life. Those parts of us that feel absolutely, completely irredeemable. Those parts of us that feel absolutely solidified in concrete. God can bring change and renewal to those areas of our lives and our relationships, but we do have a part to play. And for that, we're going to be reading Luke chapter 6, 46, and my goal in this series is to kick us off into a, a January series on spiritual practices. My goal today is to introduce you to the idea of spiritual practices, to better understand the role they have in our spiritual transformation. 
I'm hoping it'll inspire you, motivate you, convict you. And then next week, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts, the nitty gritty of how to actually start doing some of this stuff. But today, I want to introduce you, okay? So let's read Luke chapter 6, 46. Jesus says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Well, as for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid, foundation, laid foundation, the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Woo! Challenging words from Jesus. I love Jesus because, you know, he has a way of mixing that sweet and salty together all in one. This makes that irresistible flavor. He comes at us with a sweetness, something that inspires us, and some saltiness, something that challenges us. The thing that inspires me about this parable is the imagery of a house on a firm foundation that cannot be shaken, right? It's this image of stability, strength, and security. I love that image. Who doesn't want to be able to stand their ground when even the biggest wave comes at them? Wouldn't it be awesome to paddle out on a 30-foot day and cast that wave and ride it like it was a two-foot wave and have everyone just, wow, you know? There's something inspiring about the strength and stability and security that Jesus describes in that house that stands. But there's also something kind of haunting about the other house, the other example. The person who doesn't dig deep enough, doesn't build their house on a foundation, on the rock, and it collapses because it's not prepared for the storm. It's an image of fragility, frailty, and failure. And man, that one really grabs me. That one also kind of overwhelmed me this last year. If you don't know me and you're just visiting us or new to the church, this last year, uh, about a year and a half ago, I was installed as lead pastor of the church here. And um, within the first few months of being installed in this new job with all this new big responsibility, um, my house went through a major crisis and we had to re-pipe the entire house, rebuild our entire kitchen. We had to rebuild our entire roof. It was mind-blowing. We, took out, we had to take out enough loans to put another kid through college. And it was stressful. It was overwhelming. We moved between five different houses. There were days where my wife and I were just trying to keep our head above water. There were days I showed up to preach true confessions, didn't even shower because I didn't have running water. Just showed up and go, I don't even know how to shower. Here I am. I uh, made a last-ditch effort to call friends on my way to church. Can I shower at your house? Couldn't reach anybody, so here I was. Uh, <laughs> it was a crazy year, but in the midst of that year, of all that rebuilding, you know, that I resonate with in this image of the house, my wife was telling me the other day there were spiritual practices that we have been engaged in for 20 years that became like a ballast, an anchor, a foundation that even in the midst of all the moving and all the turbulence and all the real stress, and there were stressful days, that our lives stayed above water. Where even though we would flip upside down and be underwater for a moment, we would always come right back up. And it wasn't sheer willpower. It was this idea right here. It's what we build our life on, the foundation of our life 
That's what Jesus is getting to. There was a moment where in, uh, there was huge rains and the side of our house flooded, all right? And the water was up to my shin. And we were bucketing the water, just bucketing it out. And it wasn't drained. We couldn't figure out why. So after we bucketed all the water and got a pump and drained the water out, a couple of days later, we got a plumber to come out. And they uncovered, um, they dug up the ground and found that roots had grown into our drainage pipe. Let's go to the, here it is right here. Now here's the thing. On the surface, our side yard looked beautiful. We got a fountain, flowers, pretty trees. It looked perfect. But beneath the surface, things were not right. The root system had grown into the drainage and was clogging it up, and only by digging it up could we clear out the water. So here's the point that Jesus is getting to here. There is work beneath the surface of our life that needs attention, Right? It's so much easier to focus on the external, the stuff above ground. It's the stuff that's pretty, that's fun to look at. Oh man, look at my yard, it looks so good. Let's just ignore those roots growing down into the pipes because there's nothing fun or exciting about spending a lot of money to rip out roots. The side yard doesn't look any prettier. It just can drain water. The focus of the parable with Jesus is the house's foundation. It's that hidden part of the house that is the most important. The corollary to our life is there's a hidden part to our life, the part of our life beneath the surface, beneath the part that everybody sees that Jesus wants to draw our attention to. Notice this, Jesus doesn't say, oh, your house is collapsing because you didn't have the right backsplash, you didn't have the right countertops, you know? Oh, you know what, you needed a new paint job, or you know what, you just needed a new set of furniture from Restoration Hardware. No. It's something less, it's something more pedestrian, less attractive and exciting. It is the foundation of the house that Jesus is drawing our attention to. The part that's hidden. The same is true for our life, right? Jesus is speaking about our thought life, our desires, our character, what Jesus calls our heart. That part that nobody sees. And Jesus' invitation is to build our lives on him so that his quality of life incrementally Little by little, more and more becomes more like his. Spiritual transformation isn't something that happens in a moment in the flat blink of an eye. It's something that happens day in, day out, the boring little work of just that no one else sees behind the scenes lays our life on a foundation that stands its ground when we need it most. Listen to this. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the kind of life that he came to give to us. He says, and I put it in different translations so you get the effect in stereo. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. This is what Jesus came to give us. Number two, I have come that you may have life and have it to the? To the full. I love that one. How about this one? My purpose is to give you a? And? find life. I mean, is this the Jesus that you're following? Check this one out. This is my favorite. This comes from the message. Let's read it out loud together. I came so you can have real and eternal life, more and better life than you ever dreamed of. Isn't that amazing? This is Jesus's invitation to our life and this metaphor of digging deep so that our lives are built on the rock is the invitation to this abundant, rich, satisfying life. But my friends, we've got to dig. We've got to dig. 
The thing we'll notice about both people is they both build their houses in the same place. One digs deep, one does not. Now, here's the point of our message is, what does it look like for us to dig down deeper into the life of Jesus so that our lives are truly built on the rock? It's not enough to believe that there's rock down there. We've got to dig to it. And a lot of us maybe get stuck thinking, if I believe there's rock down there, if I hope in the rock down there, if I trust there's rock down there, that's good enough. And that's not true. As we'll see, we've got to dig down to it. And so what does that mean for our life? Here, let's start. Digging deeper, and then we'll talk about, one, digging deeper, and then number two, building on rock. Let's start with digging deeper. Verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words, and, you hear that and right there? Let's all say and together. And. Now, he doesn't say, here's my words, you've done it. See, and there's a lot of work in just hearing his words. I mean, come on, it took work to show up here today. You had to get out of bed. You had to, so let's see, shower and brush your teeth, hopefully. And then, if that wasn't enough, you might have had to get somebody else ready to come here as well. Parents in the house, spouses. Oh, you had to get them here. There's a lot of work. The challenge, though, is that we can do all this work getting here to listen, to hear it. And if we don't get the and part, we've actually missed the whole thing altogether. Watch what he says here. Look right here. As for everyone who comes to me, we've got to come to Christ. Number two, we've got to hear him, but then and puts them into practice. I will show you what they are like. Let's pause right there. I mean, what's Jesus hitting on? He's hitting on the absolute most obvious thing, right? Jesus sometimes is a master of the obvious because sometimes it's the easiest, most important things we overlook. So what's he saying? He's saying, number one, listening and admiring and studying his life is a good start, but if it doesn't move to practice, we end up stuck in arrested development, right? We stop growing. Now, here's the thing. You've got to begin a race if you're going to finish it. Are you with me? You can't finish a race if you don't start. So starting is important, but if all we do is start and listen and have good intention, well, have you heard that phrase? The road to hell is paved with good intention. And there's some truth to that. You can have all the right intention, but if you're not prepared to go to the next level and not just hear it, but do something with it, we get stuck. Just admiring Jesus, just studying his life and parsing the Greek, and that's not going to be enough. We've got to actually get to it and do something with it. The life of Jesus is supernatural, beautiful, attractive, and amazing. The thing is, is that even non-Christians look at Jesus' life and can't argue with the beauty of his life, right? They're like, what in a life? Uh, Muslims will agree that Jesus was a prophet and lived a spectacular life. So people look at the quality of Jesus, And they go, there's something magnetic and irresistible about him. I mean, who doesn't want to be filled with Jesus's peace and joy and generosity and power and wisdom? Could you use some of that in your life somewhere? Wouldn't it be nice if we could just snap our fingers, matrix it, you know, just stick it back there, you know, boom, and it just downloads, just instantaneously, you just got a fresh download of Jesus' generosity. Wouldn't that be cool? If you could walk away today with one attribute of Jesus, if you could pick one, right? Let's take the fruit of the Spirit, his faithfulness, his gentleness, generosity, joy, kindness, love, peace, patience, self-control. If you could grab a hold of one 
and take a step forward in one of those areas, what would it be for you today? Think for a moment. These are the attributes of Jesus' abundant and rich life that he's inviting us to. Who doesn't want that? Jesus walked on water, resisted temptation in the desert. He forgave people while they were crucifying him. Now, you look at all that Jesus did, and you start to feel like it's a beautiful life, but it's impossible for me to ever live it. And we can lose, begin to lose sight of the fact that the life of Jesus is actually meant to become our life. When you look at Jesus' life, it's easy to go, Jesus was amazing, and lose sight that the whole point of the Christian life is God transforming your life into Jesus' life. Because there's some qualities of his life that are kind of, let's be honest, overwhelming. Have you ever felt the gap between where you want to be and who you are? When you look at Jesus' life, it's easy to do that. There's a moment where the disciples were there. Let me tell you the story. This rich young guy comes up to Jesus and says, hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus shocks everybody and he says, go sell all you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me, and I'm gonna give you treasures that are so much greater than all the little trinkets you've been holding on to. Go give your monopoly money away. Let me give you treasure that will last forever, right? And the guy walks away sad. Now, what's interesting in the moment are the disciples. They don't look at Jesus and go, man, Jesus, way to stick it to the rich guy. Yeah, we've been waiting for someone to do that. No, they kind of freak out because Jesus says it's hard for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God. They start to put their trust in their retirement, their savings, their income, their assets, and little by little, incrementally, they drift from confidence in God and their confidence incrementally drifts to their their material possessions and strength, and they start to erode their faith in God, right? And so when they hear this, they're not thrilled about it. They're intimidated, and Peter goes, whoa, well, then who can be saved? He's like, who, Jesus, can actually be saved? And no, this is what Jesus says. Look at this. Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. Now, let's read this part together. But not with God. All things are possible with God. Now, that's it right there. Now, Jesus is kind of messing with this, isn't he? He said, on the one hand, it's impossible. Then he's saying it's possible. It's like, which is it? Ever felt that way with Jesus? It feels a little bit like, okay, I feel inspired. Jesus, I want to become more like you. I want to become more patient. I want to walk. I want to start my daily devotions with you. I want to hear your voice. And then after day three, it feels impossible. Ever gone from a moment of inspiration? I can do this. To like, one hour later, no, forget it, it's over, I quit. I remember my daughter uh, was learning to play soccer or, or go, go to a new level in her game, and her brothers are telling her, you've got to learn in soccer, you've got to learn to juggle ball. If you learn to juggle, you're going to get better. You can't go on the field and just try harder. You've got to train differently. You hear that? So she started to juggle. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but juggling is where you have a soccer ball, you drop it, and you kick it, and it goes up, and it comes right back to your foot again. And again, without touching the ground or using your hands. And, you know, my son was saying, hey, look, if you do this enough times, you can actually juggle with both feet. And you can get the two, three, four hundred juggles without the ball ever touching the ground or ever using your hands. It just, boom, boom, perfect position each time. So my daughter goes out, oh, I'm going to do this, you know. First drop, boom, over the fence. <laughs> Next drop, into the window. No, no, I'm joking now. But for two weeks, the first drop was gone. Two weeks, just boom. 
But then little by little, right? Day in, day out. Man, that first week, that second week, it's tempting to quit. Do you know that feeling where it feels impossible and there's something in you, no matter how hard you're trying, you feel like you just can't break out of the rut, the groove, the pattern of reacting in your life, and you feel like nothing can change? Do you know what I'm talking about? And Jesus is addressing that. And I love his honesty. He's like, hey, with you, it's impossible. But with me, all things are possible. Now, what's, where, where, where does that fit with the parable? This is where the digging come in, comes in. The bridge between po- impossibility and possibility is the digging. Let's talk about the digging for a minute. Digging doesn't in itself make the house stronger. You notice that in the parable? It's not by digging that all of a sudden the house gets stronger and stronger with every dig of the shovel, the house just gets more muscular and more firm. No, no. The, the digging doesn't make the house stronger, but it places the house on something that is, and that's what we're talking about. Spiritual practices by themselves don't make us stronger people, but they put us into relationship, into connection with the one who is stronger, who is higher, who is greater than ourselves. The digging doesn't make the house stronger, the rock does. Now that gives us a beautiful picture of what spiritual practices are about. Spiritual practices are about digging deeper into our life, into the life of Jesus. And I wanna talk a little bit about spiritual practices and the way they work in our life, because for two millennia, believers, or I'm sorry, men and women who have followed Jesus have been using spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, or what we can call um, means of grace. If you're into the reformed, uh, Puritans, uh, they had this phrase, means of grace. And I like that phrase because spiritual practices are a way for us to leverage the grace of God for the transformation in our life that God has promised and is committed to producing in us. You with me? Check this out. Here's a cool quote. One of my favorite quotes about spiritual practices right here, Ruth Haley Barton. I love the way she phrases this in her book, Sacred Rhythms. I cannot transform myself. Let's be super clear, guys. Digging does not make you a better person. This praying, reading your Bible by itself does not transform us. Reading the scriptures, memorizing, meditating on it, it's the degree to which it places our thoughts, our reactions, our affections on the foundation of Christ's thoughts, affections, and presence in our life that it changes us. That's what she's saying. Practices don't change us. Jesus does. Watch. I cannot transform myself or anyone else for that matter. So, spouses. What's this? I didn't do this first service. Let's do that right here. Spouses, you cannot transform your spouse. Sorry, bad news. I know it's hard to hear this, but quit trying. You cannot transform your spouse, so let God do it. Isn't that good news, though? That's really good news. That may be the best news you heard all morning. Your spouse has permission now to stop trying to transform you. But they may be used by God to get you into a place, help you get to a place where you can be. Watch this. I cannot transform myself or anyone else for that matter. What I can do is create the conditions in which spiritual transformation can take place by developing and maintaining a rhythm of spiritual practices that keep me open and available to God. Now that, my friends, is what I'm talking about. 
open and available to the one. Right? See, the digging exposes and makes available the firm ground to build the house on. And that's work. There's effort in spiritual practice. Grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. The grace of God enables us to make the greatest efforts of our life for that which it means and is worth the most. Relationship with God. The capacity to love one another with the love of Christ. Now here's my definition of spiritual practices. I'll, get, I'll break it down into a really simple uh, example you could put into a kid's book. Activities of mind and body. Let's read it out loud together. Let's read this definition. Ready? Activities of mind and body that help us to cooperate with God's grace so that we become more and more like Jesus. That's what I'm talking about. You know, um, there are these fundamental core practices like reading the word or prayer or worship, right, that are foundational. But then if you have a foundation of core practices, it frees us so that all kinds of new creative ways new little practices that aren't necessarily in the Bible, but because we have these core practices, they can actually become helpful to us in opening our life to Jesus. I'll give you an example. Um, I don't know about you, but I felt like I was the most patient, kind, loving person until I had kids. You know, when I had kids, it was like kids brought to surface this profound, troubling character flaw of impatience in my life. Now, here's the thing. Kids don't make us impatient. Here's my contention. Kids bring to light the impatience that is already residing within us. And in my early parenting life, I could just see moments where I was losing my temper with my kids, right? I was getting angry. I would raise my voice. I would give them the, 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 the Vulcan neck pinch. You know that one? That move? Dad's, we, boom, right there. And oh, he's like, oh, yeah. You know, and I would just grab them really hard as if the stronger I grabbed them, you know, the, the more they're going to want to change and get better. And um, there came a moment where my kids were, telling, were letting me know that actually I was, it was, uh, I was starting to scare them. They were like, you know, I feel, I feel scared. My wife asked me, asked my kids one time, hey, how did you feel when your dad got upset with you? And they go, I just felt scared. I'm like, oh, okay. Where your anger overshadows the grace of God and his discipline. There I was. And I wanted to change. And they said, Dad, it's your anger face. This scrunched up, teeth gritted thing. They're like, when you get the angry face, Dad, that's what I really get scared. I think you're about to just lose control. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense, all right. So this is what I did. I said, okay, every time I give you the anger face, I am going to take you out for a treat. So if you call out the anger face while I'm doing it, you get a bigger treat. If you call out the anger face later in the week, that's still okay. You still get a treat, okay? And so I take them out for ice cream, Slurpees. I take them out for a treat. I got to tell you guys, listen to this. In that year that I made that my number one area of growth, I wanted to grow in self-control with my kids. I got to discipline them, but I wanted it to be with firmness and kindness, that little repentance practice, it was a way of repenting. My kids would go, anger phase, like right in the middle of me just being so mad. I'm like, oh, you're going to just go to anger phase. And I'd be like, oh my gosh. And I'd start laughing. There's no way not to laugh. It was like, I just couldn't handle it. I'm like, all right, all right, you're right. You called it out. It's ice cream right now. Let's go. And it, it was, I don't know about that year, somewhere in that year, that little practice just unknotted this reactive 
tendency with my kids. And it got to the point where I hardly ever did it after that year. It just was like kind of not, I'm not perfect, but it unknotted that reactive dynamic that I was trapped in. Little things like that. So look at John Orbrick. He has a great little statement. Any activity that can help me gain power to live life as Jesus taught and modeled it. That's what we're talking about. Spiritual practices, they don't replace God's grace. Get this, they leverage God's grace for your transformation, for God's glory and your good. That's what the rock represents. The rock being beneath our feet is grace. The digging doesn't make the rock exist, and it doesn't make the rock what it is. The digging is just gives us access to the rock. The presence of God is in our life, and God is making himself available, and he has removed every barrier between us and him through the death and the resurrection of his son, who has removed sin from our life for those who put their trust in him. But if we're not willing to ask, seek, and knock, then we're not going to receive and enter into the strength and the stability of his life. That's what Jesus is leading us to. Now, um, I wanted to show you a little bit about transformation, how God transforms us a little bit here. So I'm going to get a little bit abstract, but hang in there with me. I'll, I'll make it practical. So Dallas Willard, in one of his books, I think it was The Great Omission and Divine Conspiracy, talks about the golden triangle. These are different, the, the, sort of like a putting together of the different dynamics at work through the grace of God to transform us. Number one is the Holy Spirit. When you put your faith in Jesus, you receive forgiveness of sin through his death, resurrection. Then the house is cleaned out. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, takes up residence in your life. And with the Spirit is the power and the energy of God to transform your life. Think of a house with all of the wiring connected but not connected to like a generator. No electrical output from the outside, you're not going to get any light. The Holy Spirit is that generator bringing power. Titus 3, verses 5 to 7, talks about the Holy Spirit transforming and renewing us. But the Holy Spirit's at work, but so is life. James chapter, it should, I think it's chapter, I, could, I had that annotation, I think, wrong. Is it chapter 1 or 2? You, know, you could look it for me. I think it's, maybe it's 2. Okay, anyways, it's about the trials of life, and trials produce perseverance and produce full maturity. Okay, now here it is. The trials and the triumphs of life have in them the capacity to, um, the trials can teach us humility and perseverance like James talks about. Triumphs can teach us gratitude for God's goodness, right? Every good gift comes from our Father in heaven. But trials and triumphs by themselves do not transform us. Listen, trials can traumatize us. They can break our spirit and break our life. And we can lose our faith in the storm of a trial. Triumphs don't necessarily lead to gratitude. They might lead to arrogance and pride and greed. Look at me, I'm amazing. And we might think, oh my gosh, I am God. I'm so awesome. I must be God. But it's the spiritual practices on the far bottom right corner that actually enable us to leverage the trials and the triumphs of life so that we become more humble, more dependent, more grateful people. So the, the, the discipline of celebration, when there's a milestone in our life, when we have an achievement, should we celebrate that achievement? 
One of my kids got straight A's. Do you go, hey, just be thankful and humble. You didn't do that. That was all God. God, what a downer. Come on. Of course God's in it. But should we celebrate the triumph of God's grace in that person and acknowledge that they had to put some work into it? So what do we do? We go out and we had this, this last night, we went out to a nice restaurant downtown San Diego. We splurged. We've never been there, never done this. Went to this restaurant to overlook, you know, the, the cityscape at sunset and had a big meal. Told my son, get whatever you want. And we had this big fancy meal. They're like, really? Yeah, you, can eat. you don't even have to get water. You can get soda if you want. <laughs> whatever you want. Get it. Oh, wow. I'm gonna, then I'll have, the, I'll have the lemonade, you know, whatever they got. Here's the point. Celebration is a way of leveraging a triumph to God, to faith in his faithfulness to us in our life, right? No. Spiritual practices help us leverage the triumphs and the trials so that they work for God's glory and good in us. Let's go to the list of spiritual practices. Here we go. Look at these. Here they are. Disengagement, engagement. Take a screenshot. We'll post it online in our notes tomorrow. But here they are. You had disengagement, solitude, silence, fasting, frugality, chastity, secrecy, study, Sabbath. These are the ones where you're withdrawing from people and from things that are essential or good for life, like fasting. You need food, guys. You gotta eat. You're not more holy because you starve yourself to death. However, starving yourself for a time or withholding something that you need that is good for a time to increase your dependence on God is actually a time-honored practice that Jesus himself practiced before he started his ministry. For 40 days, he fasted. Not because the guy didn't know how to enjoy good food, because later his, his detractors accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard because he produced wine at the wedding of Cana and ate like a king. And people were like, what is this guy? Are you, are you fasting or are you feasting? He's like, exactly. <laughs> but feasting becomes gluttonous if we don't understand fasting. You get the point? And so we have these disengagement ones. Engagement is where you're leaning into others and you're leaning into the world. So we have worship, celebration, service, prayer, fellowship, confession, submission, generosity. These things, it's by leaning in with our time, presence, and resources. Now, here's the one thing I want to say about this. There are some that we are naturally tuned to because we're extroverts, some that we're naturally tuned to because we're introverts. For example, introverts love the disengagement, right? They love the solitude. Yes, give me some good solitude, and I'm going to grow closer to Jesus like this. But the introvert needs to understand that they need the discipline of fellowship and being around believers just as much as they need solitude. They might even need fellowship more because it strengthens that blind spot in their character and in their temperament. The extrovert who is, I need to be around people, I can't ever leave my kids, I've always gotta be productive and doing stuff, they probably need some solitude. For some of us who are extroverts, yeah, yeah right here, right here, right here, nothing could be worse than a day or two alone. It's like, I might as well die, right? It's the end of the world. My daughter is more extroverted than my wife and I because she's us combined. And so for her to get time alone is like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. So I started to practice where every year, I did it this year, I take two days of solitude to be away at a retreat um, in LA right before the Christmas services when I'm gonna be at my peak extroversion 
beforehand, I withdraw to be alone with the Lord, to hear his voice. So which spiritual practices are you drawn to? Which are easy, which are hard for you? Now, the last thing I want to hit on before we, I want to invite the band up. Before we do that, I want to talk about building on the rock real quick here. This is about digging deeper up to now. The spiritual practices that take us deeper beneath the surface. But before we go, listen to this. Building on rock. Verse 48, they are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. Digging deeper requires faith that there is something waiting for us beneath the surface of our life. And as Christians, we believe there is someone waiting in the hidden places of our life beneath the surface. On the surface is where we can easily get trapped. Focus on how we look. Focus on what we've accomplished. Focus on how in order our home is. And all the while, we can be distracted and miss the most important part of our life, that hidden part within the heart, the soul, the place, the the meeting place between you and your maker, who is your rock. Listen to this. Beneath the surface of your life and your busy schedule and your important to-dos, there is someone calling to you. Psalm 62.2 says this, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shamed. That's right. Listen to this. Let's read Psalm 89.26. You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. The presence of God is in your life, but unless you're willing to dig down into his presence, we don't necessarily, we're not necessarily able to leverage and enjoy the benefits of the strength, the stability, the wisdom, and the power of God's presence in our life. And sometimes God will allow us to go through trials to expose weak areas of our life. So they'll be saying, you know what? I need to dig there. When that side yard flooded, we didn't go, well, that was fun. I'm so, I loved midnight. Let's make that a regular annual tradition, babe. I say every year it rains. We make a tradition. We go out there. We get our boots on. And we bail out water. And we go get the pump. And we just spend three hours bailing water. That was exciting. No. My wife and I were like, we need to get to the bottom of what's happening beneath the surface. I tell people when they are struggling with anxiety and depression, they'll ask me, is it okay to take medication for, med- for depression and anxiety? You know, I'll tell you what I say to people. I say, you know what? There's an important place for medication for people struggling with, with um, you know, emotional pain like that. I want to encourage that. However, I say, but don't let the medication be a substitute for the important soul work that you need to do. Maybe the medication needs to stabilize you so you can get into some counseling, get with a spiritual counselor to get into your soul to let God do the healing. I want to invite the band to come on out. And as they come on out, I just want to invite you, what's keeping you on the surface of your life? Just a little reflection as we go into this song. Ready? Maybe for some of us, it's a lack of faith. You don't know the rock of your salvation, Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been building your life on the rock of your career, your fitness, your relationships. These are gifts of God to draw you to the rock itself. There's only one rock, one salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. And when you build your life on him, 
not just what he said, said, but how he lived your life. It takes on a strength and a stability that you can't produce even with a rich 401k, rich investment portfolio can never replace the presence and the grace of Christ in your life. So, as we go into this song, I'm going to invite you to make a call, to call out to the Lord for this year, to make a call on God to lead you to the rock that is higher than you. Listen to Psalm 61 too. From the ends of the earth, I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Let's read this out loud together. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I.